before we get into the passage, uh, I, like I think I try to do each week anyway, I would uh, remind us uh, that before we open God's word, we um, ought to remember to go to him in prayer, uh, to ask him to be directing our hearts and make sure that we can, uh, to make sure that we're listening, right? Um, God is always speaking. We are sometimes listening. Uh, we're only able to possibly hear because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Um, and, you know, I said it at the end of uh, when we did the Lord's Supper this morning, but I'm going to say it again. Um, Jason, these last uh, four, five, six, five weeks, um, four weeks, has been going through the doctrines of Christ in the first service. And, you know, sometimes we, we kind of forget that there are, you know, we see that this once and for all sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. But we, Jason has been reminding us that there's all these little, there's all these particular stipulations, all these requirements that had to be met. And one of them is the humanity of Christ and all of that means for us. And so, you know, if you've been here over the last four weeks, um, you have, and, and you've been in the, the first service, you have greatly benefited from Jason te- Jason's teachings. Um, and I would just encourage you, if you haven't been able to be here, um, to go back online and check out those messages because it has been really, really helpful. Um, I have often thought back to the things that Jason is teaching as I am preparing the message in Hebrews. And um, anyway, I just wanted to, to put in that plug because really, if you haven't heard it, you are you're missing out. So I, I hope you'll go back and, and take the time to look, uh, listen to those uh, messages. Um, today, uh, as we, I say we finish up this chapter, but like you know the way Hebrews, by now you understand the way Hebrews is written is that the author is continually going through these truths and he's revealing little bits at a time as he makes his way through the cycle, talking about Jesus Christ and his superiority. The whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ and the salvation that he made possible to everything else that's come before. Greater than any human leader, greater than any human representative, greater than any priest, greater than any law, greater than any sacrifice. Over and over and over again, this is continual um, encouragement and teaching about who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so I hope that as God speaks, we listen. So let's pray that we would be listening, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are always telling the truth. Um, that, that even in a general way, creation speaks of your glory and your power and your eternality. The fact that you are God and we are not. That can be seen from creation. But through your word, a person may know you. Through your word, a person may have personal revelation. True, on the, in the innermost being, revelation from you because of your word. And because of your word, Jesus Christ become a man, living a sinless life, dying as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, not only can we hear who you are, but we can talk to you. We can approach you through Christ, through faith in him and what he accomplished. We can actually draw near to you. God, thank you so much for what you have done through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to listen as we come to your word, that we might grow that we might be more like Christ, that we might be a better encouragement to the people around us who are in the body, that they would grow, uh, that we would be telling people who aren't in the body 
the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ so that they might know you. Um, Father, use us, please. Teach us, grow us, use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As I have been uh, thinking through the book of Hebrews, um, and as as the author of Hebrews has been back and forth talking about the superiority of Jesus, and specifically since chapter 7, talking about the superiority of Jesus and his sacrifice over the the Levitical priesthood, the old system. Um, And one of the things I was was, uh, thinking about is that it is like a a system of play. I don't know if you guys like plays. Um, I know that movie and television and streaming things is much more, you know, when I talk to the generation now about you know, turning on a television at a certain time and watching a show, like, very confused. Like, what do you mean? You know? Um, when I was a kid, there were three stations. There was 3, 9, and 12. That was down in Chattanooga. It was ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was the channels. Like, I, I know a lot of you older people are laughing and smiling because you, you know, you feel my pain from back when I was a kid. Um, it wasn't really pain. You just turned it off and went outside and played. It was much better for you anyway. Still true today. Much better for you anyway. Um, but, you know, the, you know, today, you know, I don't know, has anybody been to a play? A play. Okay, so some of you have. Um, uh, some of my cousins in Ohio are always in plays, and so on Facebook, I'll get the notifications, hey, they're going to the, the playhouse, they're doing this big uh, production. And I remember being, I, I did some uh, plays when I was younger, and, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over and over again every time. You're, you have the same lines. But what's so neat, especially about a dramatic play, um, my wife and I, we went to see Evita at one point. I remember seeing Romeo and Juliet at a local playhouse when I was in high school. Um, and, you know, the, the cool thing about being in the audience of a theater is that you're sort of drawn in by the pageantry. Even if you know the play, you're drawn into it. And for those of you who love literature, um, even seeing, a, you know, classic Shakespeare or seeing an adaptation or seeing a classic um, uh, uh, musical, all of those things sort of draw us in and they get us get our attention. I know that people identify with movies and, and, and books and all that, and it's, it's a similar idea, but you're drawn in. And as part of the audience, you're, you're, you're drawn into the emotion of what's going on, and you'll have memories about what's going on. And if you talk to the actors, they're just saying the same lines over and over and over again. From their perspective, in a lot of cases, they've done this 1,500 times, and they're going to do it again tonight. But for you, it's kind of this wonderful experience. And I wondered as I was thinking about these, you know, plays about the pageantry of the temple and the tabernacle and how the priests, day by day, made their sacrifices. But all that time, there were real individual people. Yes, surely there were people who were coming to the temple because... That was just what you did. You're a Jew. You're born a Jew. You're going to do the sacrifices. But there were other people who were conscious of their sins. And they were drawn in to what was going on. They understood the symbolism. They understood there was something real behind the sacrifice. That is, it's not just a blood. This is what makes me right with God. He's going to look on the blood of this animal, and he's going to count me righteous, even though I'm not. There was certainly that, that, that group of people as well in every generation. And now, Christ has wiped it out by one sacrifice. 
completed everything. This is a beautiful truth. It's an absolutely beautiful truth. And the author of Hebrews is trying to help this particular group of Hebrew Christians understand how all that pageantry and all those pictures and all those symbols pointed to something that Christ actually accomplished. All that stuff that, 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 was, that was happening in ritual is reality in Jesus. So to you, those of you who missed the plague, who didn't see it when it was in production, there's a reality that happened. A reality of salvation once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay? And he accomplished all of it. The ministry of the great high priest Jesus has been accomplished. But it's still working out in my life and in your life today if you're following Jesus Christ. So we're going to read 9, 23 through 28. Really, um, I wanted to draw your attention to this. So the idea of this once and for all, he, he's not going to abandon this. It's not like, oh, nine, 9, 23 through 28 is how Christ did it once for all. Surely that's in the text. Um, otherwise, I, somebody could tell me to stop talking. Um, but... But it's also in, in chapter 10. He's not, it's not like he's stopped talking about this. Um, but he's talking about all that that once and for all sacrifice means. And we'll open that more up next week and in the following weeks as we go through chapter 10. But let's read the text together today and see what God is saying. And hopefully we're listening, okay? So chapter 9, verse 23 through 28. It was necessary then... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Um, before I go on in the text, I just want to remind you, like, in the last section where we talked about, he made a couple of examples. One, a legal example, and two examples from the law to help the, the church understand what did it mean to be set apart by blood? What did it mean to be sprinkled by the blood of the sacrifice? What did it mean to be called into this covenant with God? Right? And so he just explained that from the Old Testament, from the law. And now he's saying, so since that's the case, we know that it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. Those daily sacrifices, those special sacrifices, sin, guilt, thanks, all those things. It was necessary. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Praise God for his word. Earlier uh, today, um, and I'm going to mention this one more time because I really want you to go back and listen to it. Jason talked about Romans chapter 5 and how Christ is our representative 
And he, of course, he's teaching through that because it's connected with the, with the uh, humanity of Jesus Christ. He needed a human representative, and Jesus was that perfect human representative. But I just want you to, I want you to go back and listen to it because that part about Romans 5 is really, really important for us to, to, pick, uh, to pick up here. But he says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So let's, what do we learn today? What do we learn from this passage? Uh, what do we learn that we didn't learn before? Because if you were paying attention to what I just read, almost every point that he made in those uh, few verses, uh, five verses, he's already made before, right? So the question is like, what's new? Uh, and that's what I kind of wanted to point out today. I wanted to go through those things. Um, but I wanted to give us the main point right now because, frankly, some of you uh, might fall asleep uh, as we go through. It happens. I see people nod. I get it. It's long to pay attention to somebody talk for 30, in reality, 40 minutes. Um, it's, it's a while, and sometimes we miss things. So I'm going to tell you the big point right from the beginning. Jesus the Messiah defeated sin for all time, for all who obey him, for all who trust in what he did, by the sacrifice of himself at just the right time. He defeated sin for all time. He did it by the sacrifice of himself. And it's for everyone who believes and obeys him. Okay? If you check out, at least hold on to that. What does it mean that the heavenly things had to be purified? It seems like every time we read scripture, there's like these little questions, right? And he says... Verse 23, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly thing to be purified for these sacrifices. We get it, right? We, we understood that purity is an example by which he was teaching the people how to discern the difference between common and set apart and between unholy and holy. We get it. It was a picture. But wait a minute. The heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices? What does it mean that the heavenly things had to be purified? God's holy. Right? Nothing corrupt can stand in God's presence and last unless he shows them mercy. What does it mean that the heavenly things had to be purified? And we talked about that earlier in, in, in the beginning of chapter 9 when we're looking at the earthly temple. And he says, you know, there are heavenly things that correspond to these, but we can't go into detail about that right now. So what does it mean that a heavenly thing, a heavenly reality has to be purified. Isn't God pure? What's, what's the purity? What's, what, what's the impurity? What's the corruption that has to be purified? And I would just remind you that to purify something, as we saw in the example in the Old Testament, didn't always mean that there was an impurity. Right? Because okay, so you take a, um, take a candle holder, the, the, the menorah, the light source. Was that morally impure? No. It had to be purified, it had to be set apart, it had to be sanctified for holy use. Was the scroll, the scroll, the copy of the law that Moses had written down, was that impure? Was that morally imperfect? No, Romans, if Paul in Romans tells us the law is good, and then later on the law is holy. So, we know that the, the problem, what we know with the problem with the law from chapter 7 is that it's people that are unholy. 
Well, let's think back also to the end of chapter, or I'm sorry, not the end of chapter, but the, uh, the last week's when we talked about how um, in verse 21, um, Moses sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and everything used in its testimony. And then also we saw earlier that when he uh, read the, proclaimed all the commands of the law in verse 19, Moses also took the blood, uh, the blood of the sacrifices and scarlet wool and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. So we understand that there were all sorts of things that had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifices that had to be ritually purified. And one of the functions of that, and we talked about this last week, was that he's, he's showing these are the people that are in covenant together. God has proclaimed all his word, and the stipulations of his covenant for you are right here in this scroll. And you sprinkle the scroll, and it's ratified, and you're brought into covenant. And then here's the people that God has called out. God, through the covenant in the first covenant, he did not call out Gentiles to be brought into that covenant. None of us would have got sprinkled that day unless we were with that multitude that you know, just kind of mixed up and caught up and our males got circumcised and all that met all those requirements. The rest of us would not have been included in that, in that covenant. We wouldn't have. But they got sprinkled and said, these are the people of the covenant. I'm putting this blood on them so that they are included in this uh, in this in this covenant. And then here's the tabernacle. And it has to get sprinkled too. It has to be. We have to see that God is ordained. This is the means of their purification. This is the means by which I'm making these unholy people. Okay to come and hang with me. This is the, the, the thing that needs to be purified. Is the people. And then the, the, the words of the scroll. And the method by which they would be. Uh, made right with him. That is through the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood. The priests, they also had to get sprinkled with blood. Why? Because God was saying, this is all in covenant, my covenant. All these things are going to be used in my covenant. These are the words that they need to live by and the words that they'll be purified by. These are the priests who are going to make them pure and the system by who's going to make them pure. And this is my tent of meeting where I'm going to make my meeting place with you and I'm going to make my dwelling place among you if you come to me according to the words and according to the purification. Does it make sense? All those things had to be sprinkled and brought together. And the blood of Christ sprinkles them all. We are the people of the covenant. All the believing Jews that he's writing to in Hebrews, they're the people of the covenant. You read in Acts where it says 3,000 were added that day, they were people of the covenant. And all the people from now until eternity, until Christ returns, who find redemption in the blood of Christ, who hear the gospel and hear it as good news and put their, their trust in, in Jesus and follow him and obey him, they're all people of the covenant and they are sprinkled by the blood. And we have words too. We have all of the New Testament. Testament, covenant, same word. We have all the words that Jesus has given us to grow us, to help us to follow him, to help us understand how to treat each other and love each other, how to be people of the covenant. And there's a place that we have to meet with him because God has put his Holy Spirit in each one of us. And we meet with him all the time. You understand? The blood, the heavenly things, the New Testament, all the understanding, the teaching of the gospel and the teaching of the apostles, all the added history that we get, the history of the church that explained to us how everything works out, that's all the words of the scroll for us in essence. And the method by which we are made holy 
that's Jesus. The way we meet with him is in our hearts, in reality, through the word and by his spirit. And all of that had to be purified, had to be set apart. And we, we are the ones who need to be made holy. And you'll see this in the language within the text that we're going to read. He doesn't necessarily say, hey, uh, hey guys, um, the things that's impure, it's you guys. But he does at the same time. Look at verse uh, 24. He says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us. To appear for us. Every single verse connects Christ's work with us in this passage because we are those things that need to be purified. Of all the things that require purification, whatever the list that may include, right? Because some of the heavenly things, we might not be able to make a kind of a one-to-one and understand the spiritual principle behind uh, everything that's, that was in, included in the, uh, in the tabernacle. I think we can come up with pretty good guesses, but it's not, it's not required that we understand what each one of those things was in spiritual reality. Because it's all fulfilled in Christ. But of all the things that need to be purified, we absolutely need to be purified. And that's what the author is telling us. Now, what I see mostly in this passage is that the author, toward the end of his exaltation of Christ's work as high priest, is giving us another comparison back and forth between the earthly priest and Christ as high priest. I think we need to look at that and look at what he says. And you'll see how each one is related to us. Verse 24, the priest entered a man-made copy which represented the presence of God among his people. He entered heaven to appear for us in God's actual presence. Whenever you went to one of those plays, I don't know if you have ever seen a historical play or a play that's about something that actually happened in history. Um, Number one... (laughs) They didn't have all the details right. Um, I'm pretty sure Evita had some, um, they took some liberties. At least I hope with some of them, because it would have been really weird if they solved everything by singing, right? Um, <laughs> but the pageantry of the priesthood is real. Do you understand? Like, this was something that God had ordained And so there was reality behind all of it. But even still, the priests only went into a copy that's portraying what God always intended to do through Christ. Yes, God's presence really manifested in the temple, but that wasn't the whole way that God wanted to interact with his people. That's not the fullness of his salvation, that if they did everything right and killed some animals, they could come into the temple once in a while And maybe, maybe they would have an interaction with God and feel his closeness there. Or that the lucky few who got to go into the Holy of Holies once a year and might, like Zechariah, see an angel or hear a message from God. It was always meant to show us the ultimate goal was for God to have us in his presence. For us to be able to enter into the presence of God. Us, people who are unholy, being made holy so that we can experience the presence of God. And he did that for us. 
He didn't need to do that for himself. He's always enjoyed the Father's presence. Jesus didn't go again and again and again like the earthly priest did. I imagine that sometimes the earthly priests were not really focused on everything they did. Especially in those early days of the tabernacle where it's Aaron and his sons and they're the guys doing it over and over and over and over again and people are dropping like flies outside and they're wondering like, is our ministry effective? These people are dropping like flies. My other son, he had to go pin somebody to the ground because he was going and worshiping idols. Go back to that. Do you think that maybe sometimes sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, even the priests were like, man, what's this all for? Just repeating their lines day after day after day. Is my work even effective? Do you see, that guy, he's going to sin again. He has come in every single week for the last 13 years confessing the same sin. And he feels guilty because he keeps doing it over and over and over again because his heart's still corrupt. But Jesus went in once. And he changed every one of your hearts who believe in him. And he makes effective purification for you at the deepest level. He just went once. Verse 25, Jesus offered his own blood. Priests offered blood, but not their own. There's a lot that could be said about this. I just want to highlight a couple of things. This is not anything negative for people who love animals, okay? But what is the blood of an animal compared to the blood of Christ? There's nobody ever, no human ever has been like Jesus. No human was ever fully God as well. No human ever enjoyed the fellowship that Jesus had with God from the foundation of time. No human could ever help you to share in that fellowship. No human ever obeyed God more because it was perfect. Not just in the avoiding the don'ts, right? He just didn't check off the boxes where it said, don't do this, and he's like, okay, I haven't done that. All the positives, all the living love out, Jesus never failed, not once, to love people perfectly. I was reading not too long ago about after John the Baptist died, and Jesus goes off to be by himself with his disciples, and a bunch of people follow him, and he turns around, and you know he's sad because of what's just happened to John the Baptist, and he ministers to all these people. He never, ever, ever let the needs of his, his, his own physical or emotional or whatever needs in a moment outbalance what he did for somebody else. He never took priority for himself over, over serving somebody else. He was a servant of all. His blood is more valuable than anyone else's. And yet he gave it freely. And when the priest walked in and he gave blood... Maybe, maybe the first time, the third time, the fifth time, that priest would see the value and he would remember the animal dying. And he would feel something in his heart, right? He would feel some kind of 
man, finished coffee, finished that. Imagine after five years, you think you probably got used to it a little bit. It wasn't his. There were a lot of things a priest could do and identify with. But he never made the sacrifice that Jesus made. It never cost him what it cost Jesus. It wasn't valuable like Jesus' blood. And it wasn't able to be effective. And I understand time and time and time and time again when a person remained just as sinful as they had been before. They were temporarily allowed to be in God's presence. Absolutely. Jesus appeared once and at just the right time, at the culmination of the ages, when everything came together. You know, God is not, you know, I, I, I hate it when I hear people talk about God as if it's God versus the devil. As if it's good versus evil, God versus the devil. Let me tell you something, evil exists because God has allowed it to exist because it suits his purposes for now. It's not God versus the devil. Not at all. Jesus appeared once at just the right time when God had ordained that all these things would come to pass. In the next chapter, he's going to talk about how the law is a shadow. We know that Christ is the substance. We imagine a light casting, you know, pointing at Christ. And it casts a long shadow. And depending on where the light is, you know, you see the shadow in different places. Back then in the time of the tabernacle and the priesthood, there was a light shining on Christ. And the shadow was the law and the priesthood. It was real because it was based on Christ. But can you imagine what would happen if you wanted to go and buy a house and the guy offers to sell you a shadow instead? Like, no, we saw the shadow cast. We're like, oh, that looks nice. Then we get up close and we see the house. We want the house. We don't want the shadow. Don't try to sell me a shadow. If you went into a store and you're like, I'd like to buy this cereal, and they said, Well, I can sell you the shadow. Let me shine a light on it for you. I can sell you that. It'd be foolish. We don't want the shadow. We want the substance. That substance had a perfect place and time that God had ordained. His blood, his sacrifice, at just the right time. God designed it perfectly. He ordained it. He wrote about it. He had his prophets prophesy about it. And then Jesus did it. Perfectly accomplished. Verse 26 as well. Jesus didn't deal with sin one sinner at a time, one sin at a time, like the priesthood did. If you go back to Leviticus 4 as one example just off the top of my head because I think about it a lot, you know, that we see different sacrifices for different people based on their, um, their prominence, right? There's one for leaders, one for a common person, one for a priest. Um, and then beyond that, there's also different sacrifices for different things. So you're an Israelite, and you go to the temple because, I don't know, you stole something that wasn't yours. You made right with your neighbor, now you've got to go make a sacrifice. The priest deals with it, you make your sacrifice, and you leave, and you go about your day, and you finish, and the next thing you know, 
uh, you do that again. You come to a place of poverty, and rather than admit that you're poor and ask for help from a neighbor, you take something that doesn't belong to you. You're back in the same situation. That's how the priest dealt with problems. One sinner, one sin at a time. Jesus, he dealt with all sinners of all time and all their sins at one time. Everything all at once. That's how great the sacrifice was. Verse 28, it's interesting here as the language changes. All this time, the author of Hebrews has been presenting Jesus as a high priest who does a work in comparison with the other high priests. But now he switches and he talks about Christ as the sacrifice. Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many. And I put of you. Christ was sacrificed to take away our sin and our guilt. When we think about, I'm going to go back here just for a second. I might have missed my slides. Okay, well, we'll get there anyway, um, even if I don't remember where the slide is. Um, yeah, here it is. He did away with sin once and for all. So I'm going to look at verse uh, 26 really quickly here. Um, He says, otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. I think what he has in view here is you're going to have these different ages and all these people are sinning. And if Christ had to die more than once, if he had to enter the temple more than once, then, you know, maybe after Adam and Eve. And then maybe every covenant, right? Maybe at the giving of every covenant. Whatever is in his mind, though, Christ didn't have to die over and over just once. But here he says... He says he uh, he did away with sin. And I looked at some different translations. Like, what did away with sin? What does that mean? Probably the closest word that we can understand in legal terms is annul. Back in chapter 7, he says, I think it's verse 18 of chapter 7, it was set aside, disregarded. This is no longer how we're going to do things. Jesus did that to sin. I'm not just talking about individual instances of sin. I'm talking about sin as a whole, rebellion against God. Remember that thing that you needed to be spiritually circumcised of? Physical circumcision was only for men, right? But the heart circumcision is for every single one of us. All of us were born with an inner rebellion against God that had to be cut out. That's the sin that Jesus did away with. That's the sin that he defeated. For all time. He didn't just provide forgiveness for a sin or your sin. But all sin and rebellion against God. I think it's important that we see that. Um, There's an element here. And I'm just going to kind of point you to it. I'm not going to go into great detail about it. But I want us to think about it. There's an element here of the past and the present and the future appearance of Christ. Okay. So I think we need to pay attention to it. Because it's, it's what Christ has done. So. Um, in verse 26, he has appeared once for all. Christ's appearance, that is his coming to earth and his, uh, his life and his death and his teachings and his victorious resurrection and all the things that the apostles, all that's happened. He appeared. 
Paul talks about this in uh, Titus. The grace of God has appeared. The gospel has come. The Messiah has appeared. He came into human history, and he did all that he had said he would do. He has appeared. But he didn't just appear. It says also he appeared in the presence of God. So after his, it, through his work, he appears in the very presence of God. If you're thinking about the play still, if you're thinking about the temple, he showed up in the temple of your heart, and he stayed. And he showed up in the temple of heaven to make intercession for you. Does that make sense? He appeared. He's in the presence of God now. And that brings us into the present. Into the present appearing of Christ. He says, Christ, in verse 24, Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. It was only a copy of the true one. He entered, it, he entered heaven itself now to appear for us. This is a continual appearance. He always lived, chapter 7, he always lived to make intercession for us. That's what, where he is and what he's doing when he is in heaven. He is always making intercession for us. Always pleading before the Father. If you remember the example of the ark and the blood poured out on the mercy seat, every time God looks at Christ, he sees you through Christ. Or he sees Christ through you, depending on the way you want to look at that. Instead of your sin, he sees the blood of Christ. That blood is always present. It's symbolic, effective work, workingness. Or, you know, I don't know how to say that in any better way. It's always present. Because of Christ, God always sees you in him. Always sees you united with Christ. Always sees his righteousness, not your failed attempts. Always sees his sacrifice made, not your sin that made it necessary. Always. That's what he's doing there. And, and it, there was another thing, too, that I just, I, it just it hit me as I was looking through somebody else's commentary. They pointed to this verse, and so I'm going to take you there because I think it's really, really awesome the way he uh, pointed to it. Um, can't remember who it was. Read several commentaries, but he points to this verse, or these verses, rather, in uh, Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start in uh, verse 7 just to give you a kind of a context of what's going on. He says, uh, John writes, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. You know, the dragon's the devil. Uh, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now I have come, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. Do you understand that the work of Christ stops the mouth of the accuser? All that sin that you have committed, that I've committed, that our brothers and sisters in Christ from time immemorial and even in the future, that accuser has been thrown down by the work of Jesus Christ. When, when, the, when I think it's in Ephesians where he says we're, gonna, we're free of accusation before God. That's because the devil, his mouth is shut because of what Christ did. When you sin, you don't have to listen to that voice of the accuser. 
you go right to God and you confess your sin and he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness because the work of Christ cleansed you forever. And he's going to appear one more time, saints. In verse 28, he says, he appeared once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He will appear again. It won't be to deal with sin. He already dealt with it. It'll be to bring you salvation. You who are waiting for him. It's kind of interesting that the author of Hebrews qualifies that. He says to those who are waiting for him. Waiting implies perseverance. And this is definitely a book where he's encouraging perseverance. But it also implies your present attitude towards Christ. Are you waiting for him? Are you longing for his return? Or is his return only some sort of academic principle and you're like, yeah, but I got a life to live. He'll return later when I'm done being this. Or once I've had kids or once I've seen my kids graduate or once I've, you know, uh, had grandkids or once I've, you know, gotten where I want to be in my career. Are you waiting for him now? Are you anxious to see him now? Would you be thrilled if you heard a trumpet blast? And the, the ceiling of this place doesn't matter anymore because we're going upward. Or would it terrify you? Because you know that you're not longing to see him. That's a question I can't answer for you. But I think it's a question that you should answer. Whenever I look at the word of God, I want to know more about God. And as I was looking at this passage, I, I could not escape the fact that this shows us that God ordains all things. God is sovereign over every single thing that happens in his world. He doesn't simply design something to happen to work against evil. He's not like, you know, on a headset controlling all his angels. Okay, we've got to figure out how to stop all this evil. I want you over here. I want you over here. I want you over there. He wrote it. It's been ordained, and it's just happening. It doesn't take away from his intimate involvement in what's going on. He's absolutely concerned with it, but not in such a way as to how can I figure this out. This plan was written from the dawn of time. Before Adam and Eve had ever walked the earth, God already knew how he would redeem every one of their kids if they were going to be redeemed. He designed this perfect plan to work out where the perfect high priest, the perfect human representative, the perfect man, the perfect leader, the perfect king, the perfect sacrifice, where all that would come together in Jesus Christ and he would accomplish salvation for everybody for all time and the reconciliation of the entire world. And then Jesus came and he did every single thing according to the details that were written perfectly. Once for all. Christ has dealt with sin once for all and has become the perfect and eternal representative for all who would repent. Since he dealt with sin, I want to ask you a question, honestly, and I want you to ask yourself this question. There's only two responses. There's yes and praise God and there's no and I need to. But if your answer is no, if your answer is you have not dealt 
with the sinless Son of God, the spotless Lamb who was offered, the perfect high priest, the only mediator between God and man, you need to do that today. You have absolutely no assurance of tomorrow. Have you dealt with him? Because he's the only one with whom you have to deal. There is no other. God has ordained a time for you to die. And then you're going to be judged. That's very clear in the text. How are you going to answer? Jesus the Messiah defeated sin for all time. For all who trust in him, in his work, and obey him. By the sacrifice of himself he did this. And just at the right time he accomplished all things. I I wanted to take you to another reference outside of Hebrews. Just to kind of pull these things together as well. This righteousness, the righteousness that is apart from the law, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now I know that if you're trusting him by faith, these words are precious to you. And if you're not, I... I urge you to trust in him today. Um, We're going to pray now, and then we're going to sing. And I uh, hope that you are trusting in the finished work of Christ. Uh, If you need to talk to somebody about about this, talk to somebody you you know in this room who is following Christ. Uh, Talk to me or Jason or Jay. Talk to um, our wives. Talk to whoever you need to talk to. Um, But you need to deal with this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and your mercy. Thank you so much for the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that you have made an offering for all time, for all sin, for all people who would come in faith. Because God, we are poor, we are blind, we are naked, we are needy. We can't do anything for ourselves. And we thank you so much that you have accomplished all things through Christ. God, help us as we learn these truths to share them with others, to depend on them, to encourage others to to continue to persevere uh, in their lives of faith. And Father, we thank you because you give us the strength to do so. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.